Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Prime Time with Sean Mooney. Uh, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Double J, uh, Jeff Jarrett, this past week. Uh, Jeff has a very unique perspective on the business of professional wrestling. I'm sure you caught that uh, during our conversation. Uh, growing up, the son of a wrestler and promoter, and part of a family of promoters. His grandmother was a promoter as well. Uh, he certainly saw it all as a wrestler, and then uh, being a promoter at heart, never left him. That was always a part of him, still to this day. Uh, for better or worse, uh, in some cases, it got him into some trouble. But bottom line, he always did it his way. And as I mentioned, he's still doing it right now. Uh, he's got a lot going on. He's involved in uh, Fight.TV right now. And also, he's got another promotion of his own going. And uh, many, many other projects. It was definitely fun talking with Jeff Jarrett. And I plan on seeing him soon in Chicago at StarCast and All In at the end of August. i got another great guest this week, a man who is a legend in the world of MMA. Uh, one of the first Hall of Fame inductees for the UFC. He also uh, made quite an impact during the Attitude Era in the WWF. Ken Shamrock uh, joins us here on PTSM, and we'll get to that conversation momentarily. Uh, but... Uh, First, though, I want to give a big shout-out to our latest giveaway winners, uh, Roman Itkin, uh, Jason Taylor, uh, Big Josh Hinkle, Chris Gallant, and John Owens. Um, the pictures, uh, guys, have all been sent out. Uh, so those uh, here in the States, uh, you can expect them to arrive in just a couple of days. Uh, those beyond our shores, it may take a few more. But uh, thank you all for listening and continuing to spread the word about Prime Time with Sean Mooney. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, it, it wasn't easy to uh, catch up with Ken Shamrock. Um, uh, and it was uh, certainly, though, very interesting to hear about his perspective uh, during that time that he spent in the WWE. Um, but you're going to have to bear with us, uh, guys, uh, uh, <laughs> with us on, on this, uh, this episode. I mean, tracking Ken down was not an easy task. Uh, we actually had his conversation in two parts. The second half was at a location um, that I, I really don't know where he was, but I do know that it was very loud, but, um, we did get it all in and Ken shared some great insight into the world of MMA and the time he spent in the WWE. So with that, let's get to it. My conversation with Ken Shamrock. Ding, ding, ding. I am honored today to have a legend join us who, uh, one who certainly had a tremendous career in the WWE but who is also known all over the world as one of the greatest MMA fighters ever. And that recognition was confirmed when he became one of the first MMA fighters to ever be inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame. Uh, welcome, Ken Shamrock, to Primetime with Sean Mooney. Ken, thank you so much for coming on. How are you? I'm doing well, and I appreciate that introduction. Well, uh, it's uh, certainly well-deserved. You've had a, a tremendous career and, and a, a, a versatile one. You've done so many things. And uh, Ken, I know you, uh, a lot of these interviews always start uh, talking about how you grew up, but um, the, the point I think that is just so important when we uh, start talking about you and your career is really where you came from. And I saw an interview where you talked about, uh, you know, folks, if you know anything about Ken Shamrock, you know that uh, he came from uh, just incredible beginnings and really just came from nothing and built himself up uh, into uh, one of the greatest fighters ever on the planet. 
But uh, I think it just the way you the way you uh, looked at it and dealt with it all could help anybody, no matter what they're doing in life. And I saw an interview where you talked about, you know, when you are when you're in those circumstances, uh, basically you come you, you decide of one of two paths. Either you uh, become a victim in a sense or you find another way and and survive. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you really mean by that and and uh, and how that drove you when you were very, very young? Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I came from a situation where, um, you know, my, my biological mother um, had three young boys all uh, a year apart. Right. Um, and in uh, and, and this is back in 19, you know, 60s yeah. uh, to for for women to have a job, be able to support a family was very difficult. So she she made ends meet the best way she could. But um, uh, we were left home a lot and, um, you know, a lot of bad things, different things uh, that had happened uh, while we were young. and. The thought process, uh, and it wasn't one that was consciously made. It was one that was unconsciously made, mm-hmm. and it was it was it was a live or die type situation. And and in a lot of situations, um, you know, it doesn't do any good to lay down and whine about it or cry or or give up because in those situations, that means pretty much that you're dead, and because mm-hmm. there's nobody there that's going to help you. Right. Um, or you just stand up and fight, you know, and, and, and just keep going, just keep moving, keep going and don't la- allow anything to, to stop you from moving forward. Um, and if you've got that kind of mentality and that kind of thought process, then you'll succeed in no matter where or what you're doing. And, uh, I believe that's where me and my brothers, when we were young, that's the situation we were in. There was no one there coaching us. There was no one there you know, in our heads trying to teach us the right way and the wrong way to do things. Um, but what, what we did have in us was that, you know, we weren't going to lay down and cry about something because that would mean that we would never succeed. Um, we always got up and we fought right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, we got up and we fought for everything we had. But Ken, and a lot of, a lot of people don't make it out of those situations. And do you think that was what was inside of you? Was it, it was a genetic was it uh, more than that? Because like I said before, uh, people make a choice and uh, they do. They either they hit the people that come from those situations. They don't a- they don't end up average people. Either they become, like I said, a victim or they become overachievers. And for you, what do you think it was besides just I want to live? But beyond that, because uh, you did much more than than just survive. Well, it's hard to say because when you're actually in that particular situation, I know with me, I always had this desire to be somebody. I always had this desire to want to be great. Even when I was a five-year-old kid, you know, I it just felt like I didn't want to be a nobody. I didn't want to just lay down and be nothing. Mm-hmm. And as I got a little bit older and went through group homes and, and, you know, doing everything wrong, but nevertheless still surviving, yeah. um, and, and my mom. And watching these football players and these different things like that, I always thought, you know, I could do that. I could be a professional football player, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so I really just, I just started just doing things, uh, whether it was, you know, um, fighting or, 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 you know, scrapping over a, a sandwich or, or a toy or anything. I always had to figure out a way to win, and mm-hmm. um, and there were those times they weren't the right way to do things, but. Um, for whatever reason, in my mind and my body, it was like the will to win and it whatever I had to do to win. 
as I got older and I started understanding how life works, I learned how sports worked uh, through football. You know, I play within the rules and I became relevant. I could get things that I wanted. Uh, people, I was important to people because everybody wanted to help me yeah. uh, because they wanted me to play on game day. So I understood, started to understand at a young age uh, that I could be relevant to being good at something. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I took advantage of that. I became very good at football and wrestling and um, people helped me get good grades so that I could play on those days um, and went into college, played college football. Um, and uh, so I started understanding at a young age that being good at something, uh, I could leverage that towards people helping me to, to, to succeed in life. Yeah. But also co- overcoming great adversity. I think, uh, at one point, I think you, you broke your neck or, or something like that when, uh, that kind of deterred you, I think from football and you came back and played, uh, uh it's just amazing. And folks, we, I'd, I'd love to be able to get into the whole story with, with Ken and, and what he went through, but, uh, somehow that path ended up leading you to professional wrestling. And then of course, MMA and, uh, one thing that really struck me, uh, reading about you is, uh, you talk about, I think one of the first trips you made to Japan and, um, uh, I, I, I don't know if it was Minoru Suzuki or Masakatsu Suzuki. I don't, I can't remember who it was that you went over there, but you know, like in wrestling, they call it, they stretch you to see if what you have inside. And, uh, they went beyond that, uh, what, what they do with wrestling. I mean, they just, I think you talked about being choked out a few times and I think it all relates to the way you, you say that that's the way you live. There, like there was no other option for you but to keep going. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I remember going over to Japan. I do a tryout over there, and I went yeah. um, almost, uh, I mean, I couldn't the exact time, but it was about two hours. Uh, and I literally got the snot beat out of me, but I kept getting up and keep going. Now, who uh, was it? I, did, I, I didn't mean to interrupt was, you. But... It, it, it was, I actually started out with two young boys. Uh-huh. I went 30 minutes each with them. Right. And then um, Suzuki and Fanaki came in um, right. towards the tail end of those working out with the young boys. <laughs> uh-huh. And I was pretty much dominating the young boys, beating them up, you know, not very competitive. Well, then they came walking in and then I did another 30 minutes each, each of them. And I literally just got just tooled. I mean, I got beat up. I'd never been handled like that before. And, uh, but mentally in my mind, I was thinking, man, I got to learn this. And I kept going. And I remember, um, uh, one of the uh, instructors there who brought me up there, uh, was asking me, Hey, uh, you know, you had enough. And I kept saying, no, I want to keep going. And I wouldn't quit. I just kept going because I felt like I, the more I was in there, the more I was learning and the more I learned, the, the, the more chance I had of winning. And so I just kept going until finally. I mean, Sammy Saranaka was the guy that I'm talking about. Just said, "Okay, that's good." Mm. Um, and I went for about two hours with this, and and I got beat up uh, quite a bit. And so for me, uh, that was that's when I really realized, like, hey, this is something that I want to learn because no one has been able to handle me like that before. Mm-hmm. And and then from that, I guess that was kind of the beginnings where you really, you know, uh, became uh, one of the elites in that sport and. A lot of people, they see today the UFC, and it has certainly changed dramatically. But what was it like? I, mean, I, I go back and look at some of these matches and, you know, uh, barehanded and uh, these just can you describe the, the early beginnings of what MMA was really like? It, 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 uh, it, it doesn't really 
resemble uh, if anybody really knew. I mean, it was basically street fighting in a ring. Uh, what was it like back then in the beginnings? And you were certainly one of the first to uh, help put that uh, that sport on the map. Yeah, it was interesting because I remember um, when the my uh, fighter, one of my fighters had actually seen the flyer and he showed it to me and I was like, oh, that's not real because it <laughs> said anything goes, no yeah. holes barred, anything goes. And I was like, I looked at him and said, dude, that's pro wrestling. He goes, no, man. They said this, I mean, I mean this is like fighting. There's, there's no rules. And I said, no, that, that's, that's pro wrestling. No holes barred, it's pro wrestling. He goes, uh-huh. no, man, it's just like fighting. They got this thing they're doing. And so I pulled the flyer and I said, let me look at it. And it said that. It said, hey, no holes barred, anything goes, real fighting, boom, boom. And I said, okay, well, let's call him just to, you know, it's, it should be fun. Mm-hmm. So I call it. Art Davies picks up and he, I said, hey, so I got got this flyer here. It says anything goes. And I, so I said, so what you mean is, is I can literally punch a guy with closed fist to the face while he's on the ground and I'm on top and just pummel him. He goes, yeah. I go, what about guy on the ground? You kick him in the head when he's on the ground? He goes, yeah. And I was like, okay, whatever. And he said, no, for real, this is, this is anything goes. And I was like, well, how is that going to happen? There's no way. I mean, there's rules and regulations. And he says, no, I'm serious. This is happening. And I said, well, I mean, I'd like to do it. And he goes, well, what are your credentials? And I told him, I said, oh, I'm champion over in Japan. And, you know, um, uh, we do mixed martial arts over there. It's not quite no holes barred, but mm-hmm. you know it's it's close. And so he said, "Okay, well, uh, let me give you a call back, um, and let me check on, see what it is, and we'll see whether or not we we've got any room." Well, it was probably fifteen twenty minutes later. I get a phone call back, and he goes, "Yeah, we'd love to have you." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he kind of figured out, "Hey, I was a champion over there, and and it was exactly what they were doing, except theirs was closed fist, no rules." So I ended up doing it. I remember walking into the very first fight. I flew from Japan after defending my title, <sighs> flew into Denver, Colorado. And, and they, I mean, it's, it's a mile high. So the air was really thin. I'm not even thinking this thing's going to happen. Like, I'm just like, whatever. We're going to get there and go, okay, here's how it's really going to work. So we get there, press conference happens. And I mean, it's literally like, it is going to happen. Uh-huh. Night before the fight comes in, they tell us that we can't wear like i couldn't wear my shoes another guy couldn't wear his shin guards and uh and so the everybody was saying well i thought this was no holes barred anything goes well those are too dangerous and this and that of course no one understood the gi at the time but um um, which was also a weapon that hoist used uh but we couldn't wear our shoes like i was slipping all over the place but so we go in there and we do this fight and i remember thinking to myself when the first fight happened i was like this is really happening i mean like they're really going to do this. Like anything goes in a street fight. Yeah. And uh, so the first fight happens in Gerard Goudeau and Emmanuel Toué. There's a sumo guy against a kickboxer, a savat kickboxer, guy from Holland. And he walks yeah. across the ring. He throws a right hand. This dude is 400 pounds against a guy who's 190 pounds. <sighs> and so Gerard, the 190-pound guy, Gerard Goudeau, throws a punch, hits the guy. He goes falling to the ground. He walks over and he football kicks him in the face. I mean, literally just boots him in the face. The guy's teeth goes flying in the front row. And we had Superfoot Bill Wallace, who's a karate guy, Kathy Long, who's a kickboxer, and and Jim Brown, who was a, a Hall of Fame running back for yeah. the Cleveland Browns. And they're all sitting in there, and they're doing the announcing. And literally, <laughs> literally when this happened, yeah. it went quiet. It felt like a minute, right? It was a split yeah. second. But it felt like a total minute where everybody just went quiet. Even in the locker room where guys were popping pads and this testosterone was flowing and really nobody understood what was really happening 
they just didn't understand it, right? Nobody's ever saw anything like this before. Yeah. But when that happened, everybody just paused. It was like, did that? Just, did we just see that? He just kicked him in the face when he's on the ground. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember the first words that came out that uh, that just kind of opened everything up was the Super Football is going. He just kicked him in the face. His teeth came flying in the front row, <laughs> and all of a sudden, people just started screaming and yelling in their locker room. I literally, I kid you not. There were guys in the locker room that said, literally came out of their mouths, this is not what I signed up for. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, this is exactly what yeah. we signed up for. We just didn't realize it looked like this. Well, and it's, it has certainly evolved. But, uh, Ken, for people who don't understand that mentality, uh, what is it? What is it that makes you step into that ring against, uh, in many cases, uh, tremendous odds but just the the simple act of I'm I am better than that other person uh, in the ring. I mentally, physically, everything. I mean, what what is it that makes you step in there? Yeah, you know, there's certain certain people that uh, that walk this earth, and we see it all the time on on these different feats um, yeah. that people do on these shows where people want to jump out of a plane. You know, with the these little parachutes on and try to see how far they can go without pulling the chute, yeah. uh, diving off bridges, rocks, you know, high divers. Um, there's just adrenaline to things about pushing yourself to the edge of doing things that other people can't do. And I think fighting, uh, especially in this type of fighting where, where it was no holes barred and anything goes, uh, it was basically ch- fighters challenge it. Literally guys that were tough guys, challenging themselves into a combat situation where there is no other way to do this. There is two guys walking in the ring and one guy's going to walk out. Mm-hmm. And really it's just a competitive spirit that I think some people have in them that want to just challenge themselves to this elite level. So how did uh, professional wrestling kind of intertwine with all this? Because I know you started uh, with professional wrestling and then made the transition to MMA and and then uh, we're back in into it in the 90s with the WWE. Uh, how how did they connect with each other? And and, uh, and I will get into talking about how when you ended up in the WWE, which everybody wants to talk about. But uh, I, I just think it's really interesting that uh, how those two combined in your life. Yeah, I think that pro wrestling was another way of challenging myself. Um, It was when I first did it, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to try it. My dad loved it. Um, I'll give it a shot. You know, I played college football. There was really nowhere else for me to go. And, and, uh, so I said, you know, yeah, we'll give it a shot, see what happens. And so I just kind of did it just because I felt like, well, I wasn't doing anything else. Let's go try this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so when I first started doing it, I remember thinking to myself, well, this is not bad. Like, I mean, this is pretty good. Because he had to do all these different moves and, and tricks and athletic, um, uh, you know, physical fitness stuff like backflips and being mm-hmm. able to do the karanas and just so many different athletic movements um, that challenged uh, a human being. And then on top of it, not only that, though, then you mixed in being able to act, being able to tell a story with your body and with your actions and with your emotions and with your mouth being able to speak. Mm-hmm. There was just so many things that tied into pro wrestling, not just the athletic ability, because you had to be a, a good athlete uh, to be able to pull off a lot of these things you were doing in there. Oh, yeah. But not on top of that, you had to be intelligent enough to be able to plan 
a match so that it made sense to the audience. So that it wasn't just something where it looked like it was just a bunch of paint thrown onto an artboard. It really made sense. Like it, at the beginning of the match and the end of the match made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of uh, a mental thought process that went into actual pro wrestling itself on top of being very athletic. But as you know, uh, back then it, that they used to refer to uh, a lot of the wrestling. They'd say, you know, like butter that, you know, that you, that the best guys were the ones that worked so smoothly that you never really felt anything. There was, it wasn't the, the shoot act aspect initially. Is that what drew you to MMA is that you wanted that contact? You wanted, you know, the ability to, to absolutely uh, dominate and be, you know, the victor in a, in an encounter like that. Well, we got to a point to where I felt like, you know, um, I was doing this pro wrestling and I just didn't feel like I was being fed enough for my, my ego to be mm-hmm. satisfied. I wanted more. And so that's when I started, uh, um, actually, I actually came across it with Dean Malenko, who I was traveling with at the time, mm-hmm. his father in Florida were doing these tryouts for these guys to go over and actually fight over in Japan. And I saw the videotape and I said, dude, where, where, where's this? And he goes, oh, so doing it. They hold tryouts at my dad's gym. And I said, man, I want to do that. Yeah. And he looked at me. Said, no, no, no. See, that's that's shoot style. And I said, yeah. yeah. And he goes, you want to do that? And I said, yes. <laughs> he goes, all right, man, I'll hook it up. So I went down to Tampa and I did a tryout. Pretty much dominated everybody down in that, that gym. And then he sent me to Japan a month later. Uh, Sammy Saranaka did. And that's where I did that tryout, where I went in and I worked with those guys for almost two hours and just got the just the tar beat out of me. And that's when I realized, like, there was something bigger in the world than what I was used to seeing because I had never been beat up before. I was always the guy winning fights. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was put in this situation where I had these two Japanese guys, uh, Suzuki and Fanaki, just dominate me. And, and I didn't like that feeling, but I liked it in a sense that, I, that it was something that I could learn. Uh, and so there was almost a push pull right there. It was only, I didn't like the idea that someone was, was better than me, but then I liked the idea that there was more to learn. And, and you went from there and, uh, I mean, you, you pretty much accomplished everything. I, I believe you set out to do in those early years and, and became, uh, you know, such a dominant force in the world of MMA. Did it get to a point where, uh, you felt like you'd done it all and wanted new challenges. And is that what led you to the WWE or how did that happen? Yeah. You know, I mean, I didn't, wasn't like I did it all. I mean, I did, I won everything, um, yeah. you know, pretty much everywhere I went, I've always rose to that elite level and became the champion, but it was really a point in time where the organization, Bob Meyerowitz, who was, who owned it at the time, SEG, they were constantly in and out of court, no matter what town we went to, they were always yeah. battling. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to get it sanctioned and and even when they got it sanctioned uh they would have somebody come in and appeal it and a couple times we had to move it overnight and so it just got to a point where they were spending so much money on legal fees that i when it was time for my contract came up that bob meyer which wasn't able uh to pay my contract what i wanted to what i was supposed to get and so i just told him hey listen you know i and my and it's always been my first thing is to support my family if i could do something fun and support my family and I'd do it. But if I couldn't, then I've got to, I've got to support my family. And mm-hmm. so I wasn't able to do that. Not with the lifestyle that I had built with, with the gym and fighters and, and, and I had kids. And so I, I had a certain amount of money I had to make each month and I wasn't going to be able to do that fighting because they were all constantly in legal battles. And so I told Bob Meyer, it's 
the time I had to go do something else and, and we had, we were left on good terms. And so I, that's when I actually reached out into the pro wrestling world, the professional world, WWF, the, the world where I could actually make enough money to be able to support my family and still pretty much uh, play and dabble with, with my submission skills. Ken, we're talking uh, about, uh, you know, at this point in your career, this was in the uh, late 90s, um, that uh, it was difficult, really, because there was a lot of legal uh, action going on with um, with MMA, these organizations, and that it was really it was tough to make a living. And you saw an opportunity at possibly going to uh, work back in professional wrestling. Can you explain how that all came about, how you found your path to uh, the WWE? Well, just like everything else I did, you know, I kind of like um, almost like I ran my course. I did the best I could do right. uh, in, and reached the level of the highest level that I could do. And then, you know, I kind of get those 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 antsy feet of wanting to see what's next, you know. Right. And so for me, it was, you know, pancreas reaching that level. And then, of course, the UFC reaching the elite level there and then. And then really things not really starting to do well there. It was almost like they're constantly in court, you know, always fighting on, on whether or not it was going to be legal or not legal. Right. Uh, even at times in some of the events, they took, they basically said we had to wear gloves or you can't strike. And so a lot of things were really disrupting the flow of, of, of MMA. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at that point, um, you know, they couldn't really pay me the money I needed. Uh, to support my family, the fighters, the fighters' house, the uh, the way that I kind of grew my business, I couldn't support it with what they wanted to pay me, and so I sat down with Bob Myers, had a meeting with him. And he said, "Listen, I can't, you know, I can't move on with what's going to be paid. I understand where you guys are at, no hard feelings, but you know, like if I can't support my family, then then I have to move on and do something else." And I had no idea what I was going to do at this point, mm-hmm. and so um, I did. I moved on, and so at the end of that. Um, oh, somebody did something. Um, at the end of that, uh, I uh, I decided, you know, why don't I look into some other kind of entertainment or an organization where I can actually kind of do what I do. Uh, and and I, so I started looking around. I, I I looked at pro wrestling. My dad said, "Hey, you should try pro wrestling." And I was like, "Ah, I don't know." And he said, "You yeah. could do all the moves and everything in there, and you know, you could you kind of stay sharp." And I was like, "You know what?" All right, let me let me look into it. So I put out some feelers into Japan. I put out some feelers to WCW. I put out feelers to WWF. And instantly, Vince McMahon jumped on me. I mean, it was like, you know, white on rice. As soon uh-huh. as I was looking, I mean, he locked onto me. And we got a deal done in 10 days. Wow. Uh, it was on Monday Night Raw, you know, a week after um, me, and, me and Vince had our first phone call. I was on Monday Night Raw. He flew me up. In 24 hours after we actually signed the deal, he flew me up and I was on Raw the first time uh, 24 hours after I signed the deal. So he had an idea, he had a thought and, and a direction he wanted to go uh, because all of his superstars were gone. They were over at WCW and so he needed to think outside the box, kind of what's going on in the world today, what do people like. And that's something I think Vince has always been very creative with and always very uh, brilliant is always trying to figure out the next step and kind of like what I did with my career, you know, always reaching that level, but not being satisfied. Like it's okay. What's next. Right. And, and, uh, you know, you, you had experience in professional wrestling early on in your career. So it wasn't something you were just stepping into and not, you know, really didn't know uh, what it was about. And, uh, 
you know, back in the day, uh, and I mentioned this before, they, they uh, when you were in the ring and wrestling, you know, uh, they called it, you know, uh, working like butter. You know, everybody it was supposed to be, uh, you know, smooth, and you never really ever hurt anybody. And I, I heard you comment on when you arrived in the WWE at this point, and this was just when the, you know, the Attitude Era was really coming together, that uh, you were a little bit worried about, you know, being in that ring and it not being, in a sense, what we call, you know, stiff enough. But I think... You said uh, right away uh, you were pretty impressed by what was happening in that ring at the time. Well, the attitude era hadn't started. Uh, yeah. You know, there was no attitude era. They were they were dying with numbers, and so when they brought me in, Vince had this idea about changing the way pro wrestling was, right. going beyond the the guidelines and the box that we're all stuffed in, and thinking outside of it. How do we be creative and do things differently? So when I got there. Um, you know, Vince just told me, and Bret Hart was the one that really drilled it into my head, is just be you. Uh-huh. They didn't bring you here for you to be a character. They brought you here to be you, world's most dangerous man, and bring your attitude. And so when I ref that first match with Bret Hart and Stone uh-huh. Cold, I mean, uh, that match right there turned pro wrestling on its head. I mean, people had never really seen or heard or even been around something that intense uh-huh. um they put on a heck of a match yeah. with me being in the ring bringing that no holes barred mma attitude and genre into the ring with bret hart and, and stone cold with the great match that they put on it was like a match made in heaven yeah and and you started to slip right into that. Um, was it initially tough though being around those guys because they didn't really know? They probably knew your reputation, but what it all comes down to is if you can work and if you can work in the ring. And how was there a, a, a lengthy transition there, or how did it come to for the for you to become accepted by these guys and start working with them? Well, it was tough because, I mean, these guys all saw me going in there and beating people up. I mean, yeah, knocking people yeah. out, kicking their legs. I mean, they saw all this stuff. And here I was coming into this entertainment world, and they were like, uh-uh, this is our world. Yeah. So I understood, man, these guys worked their whole lives to get there, to get to the mm-hmm. big state. Someone like myself who took a shortcut, you know, because I didn't have to put the time in that they had to. And so here I am on the biggest stage in the world, uh, and um, there's some jealousy. There's no question. But I think once I got in there and and I started, you know, basically saying, hey, to myself, uh, I, I am a, I'm, I'm a rookie. I mean, I am green. And these guys all been doing this their whole life. And so I have to tell myself, I'm not a superstar. I'm not a superstar. This mm-hmm. isn't my world. I am a very green person walking into this locker room. These people have all earned their place here. And so I need to treat them with respect. And make sure that I go to them and let them know I'm here to learn from them. And so who really was, I, I know you became very close with Brett, with Brett Hart. Uh, but who was it initially or was it Brett that uh, I guess, you know, they say t- took you under their wing or, you know, really helped you come along in there and be able to really fit into that world? Yeah, Brett was. He was the one was that he? I went up there and learned from before I had my first match. I went to Calgary. I trained with him. He helped me t- uh, understand the psychology. Uh, basically, don't 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 uh, you know don't be something I'm not. Be me. That's why they brought me in, and basically made sure that I understood that you know when I walked into a locker room that I I go and make sure I introduce myself to everyone, make sure they know that that I'm not here and I don't have an ego and that I'm here to learn from them. You know, and it, it seems like you said it was before the attitude era, but. When uh, you really started to come into your own, that's when it was really starting to come together. And it seems like the timing was perfect because, 
know, like Steve Austin talks about, you know, he threw sledgehammers and uh, when he was in that ring. And uh, you seem to fit right into that world. Was was uh, like I said, was it was the timing perfect? Because that's what the attitude was becoming. And, uh, you know, the WWE began to crest again and, and overtake, you know, WCW. Yeah, it was. Those guys, um, Brett and, and Stone Cold went in there, and especially with me being the referee. Yeah. I mean, I was a little worried going in there, like I was going to have to, you know, you know, ref this match where the punches weren't landing. And, you know, I knew those two guys that worked well, and I really respected them because they did work very well. But I was also kind of going, man, if something lands, I can't act like they hit. It's just not me. Mm. But after about a two, three minutes in the ring, and they started locking up, and they started doing all this stuff, it was almost like I completely forgot about any of the stuff I was nervous about because I was watching these guys beat the hell out of one another. I mean, they 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 beat each other up. <laughs> and so for me, I fit. It was almost like me refing an MMA match. Those guys <laughs> literally went at each other, and you know, blood coming out of their face, and you know, I mean, it was just to me, it was just a match that. You couldn't have put it together any better than that in that moment, in that time. Yeah. Well, and then as when you w- went on and, and became involved in these matches, you know, you worked with Shawn Michaels among the best in The Rock. And, uh, you know, uh, was it, uh, you know, be, working with these guys and, and uh, you know, you guys just went at it in the ring. And was it an easier adjustment once you realized, okay, this is what we're doing with this? Uh, it's not like the old school anymore. Well, all the guys bought into it. You know, I yeah. think at first a lot of them were a little bit nervous, but they brought guys in like Steve Blackman and, you know, and, and um, you know, you had Mankind going off the top. Everybody bought into this 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 attitude, this this toughness uh, that it was no more plastic and flipping your hair back and making sure your makeup was on right. These yeah. guys didn't care about that. We all bought into what Vince was putting out there, and that was we're badass wrestlers and we're going to when we get in a ring there's none of this pity pat that we're going to do you get in a ring you know somebody we're bringing it now because it's the only way wrestling is going to survive right now mm-hmm. so uh during that run and and you know we really saw that just take off the wwe was on top again uh you know and, and you look in the vastness of your career where does this part of it fit and and how do you look back on it well, I would to say, you know, everything was a transition for me. If one of them yeah. wasn't in place, I'm not sure how, how it would have worked out for me because uh-huh. I was an extreme kind of person. I, I needed more. So when I did Pancrase, it was like it was open-hand strikes. It was aggressive. Yeah. It was in, I was in awe of it, right? And I was like, wow. I was doing pro wrestling at the time, and I was like, I want this. And then once I reached the level of that, then all of a sudden MMA came out or No Holes Barred came out, UFC. And I was like, dude, I want to do that because that was another step in extreme. And yeah. so I jumped into that and I reached the elite level there. And then all of a sudden it started to fizzle like there was just no money there anymore. It was fizzling yeah. out constantly in court and they were battling and I just didn't know if it was going to be around. So I had to make moves in order to protect my family. And so wrestling came in and I was a little skeptical with it. Once I jumped into wrestling, all of a sudden now I'm getting involved in a whole new world of wrestling that wasn't mm-hmm. there before, which was called the Attitude Era. When we jumped in there, there was no attitude. Once we put together a match with Bret Hart, Stone Cold, we did that match. And then later on, as matches went on, they got more aggressive. They had the hardcore title. I mean, it just seemed like wrestling had changed in the right moment at the right time for me when I got into it. And, you know, uh, what most people see is they would see what would happen on Monday Night Raw. But you were out there, too, going to these these house shows. And uh, what was that uh, like, that experience 
different from what you'd really been involved with before. And, you know, going to these house shows was very different than a lot of these television appearances. Did you enjoy that and life on the road and being in the car with these guys? I did. It was uh, it was all a new experience for me and it, it yeah. was fun. I enjoyed it and being able to make these new relationships and being able to compete at a high level and be a part of something that was changing and new. And I was one of the main focuses of that. So for me, it was all really exciting and fun. But then it, towards the end there, it got a little bit old when they did the screw job on Brett and yeah. all that stuff came apart. And it just felt like for me, it was almost like my foundation had been ripped out from underneath me because now the WWF, for some reason, um, because I was, you know, working with Brett, which I thought that's what they wanted me to do. Now, all of a sudden, their relationship was strained. And now, all of a sudden, I was stuck in the middle of WWF and, and Brett Hart on what side I was going to choose. And there was no choosing sides. Mm-hmm. I worked WWF or WWE now. But mm-hmm. my the guy that trained me and got me ready for pro wrestling was Brett Hart. So I wasn't taking a side against anyone. I just wanted to make sure that they knew I supported Brett. And it was a, I thought it was a bad thing that, that happened to him. And I wanted to let him know that I supported him. But at the same time, I still had to do my job. And it just seemed like I couldn't get that across. Uh, Brett was fine with it. But it just seemed like I think the WWF, for whatever reason, thought maybe that, you know, I wasn't going to, you know, be a, a company guy for whatever reason. Yeah. Now, uh, your your encounter with uh, the Nasty Boys, that that uh, is well documented. And uh, in the end, you came out on top of that with... Uh, uh, between those two, but w- overall, were there any other, uh, confrontations? Did you have any other issues with any of the boy, any of the other boys or pretty much did you get along with everybody else? Was there ever any, ever anything I, I, else? That- I got along with everyone, you know, yeah. there's some discrepancies here and there, you know, with some stuff going on, but yeah. really you talk about any physical confrontation or anybody really just hating one another. I, I didn't have that. I didn't hate anybody. Yeah. So at this point, though, you mentioned uh, pretty much after the, the Montreal screw job that, and, and your closest to Brett, did you start besides what was happening with uh, the company and and you feeling that uh, you know maybe they were they were uh, turning their back on you a little bit? Did you start feeling a pull to go back to MMA, uh, back to UFC? I did once they started beating me. Uh, I was losing yeah. matches left and right, and I I kind of got seen the writing on the wall. And yeah. so then I was like, okay, I got to protect my, because my character was me. I went in yeah. there as me. It wasn't a character they developed. So I, then I had to start thinking about protecting my character, protecting who I was as a person in my, you know, my, my business, um, and my, everything I built over the years before getting there. And so I really started to think about that and had to make some different moves in order to get out of my contract so that I could go back and really make some good decisions on whether or not I was going to go back into fighting or I was going to do something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and I ultimately decided to go back into fighting, and I thought uh, that was another um, opportunity for me to build another company, help another company uh, achieve success, and that was the UFC. I went back into Pride, um, did some big matches over there, got their numbers up huge, mm-hmm. uh, made the connection to the U.S., then from Pride, I went into the UFC. They were dying. Um, you know, they were getting 30,000 buys or something like that at max with Tito as their champion. They couldn't get anybody to have a rivalry with them. I went back there just for one purpose, and that was to build up the numbers. They told me I couldn't do it. They said, I don't know, it's not, we can't pay you because we, we don't think you can do it. And then on that first match, I did it. You know, I yeah. knocked it up 150,000 buys, which was, you know, quadruple or whatever you want to call it, more than what they're doing before. And I was the only different piece there. And so uh, the next match I had with Tito, we did over a million. So you, you can you see what it is, is that 
all along the way that our companies that I've been in and different ones I've been in, I've always been there and been able to at least help those companies build up to success. Yeah, and had a lot changed during that break from the time that you were with the WWE. Had a lot changed in the world of MMA and, and the business of it? There's no question, man. I, I came back and I realized that, uh, you know, I was way behind the eight ball. Uh, they, they're the rest, you know, these guys walking into the ring were so much more sharper. Conditioning's better. There's their striking and their, their takedowns and their submission setups and everything was just so much more advanced. Uh, you know, being away from it for two and a half years, three years, man, that was like a, that's like a lifetime, uh, when you're talking about sports. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, it was, uh, I mean, an incredible ride. Uh, Ken, we could talk all day about this incredible career that you've had along the way. Uh, I did want to ask you about, uh, about your brother, Frank, um, a lot of people sound the, saw the bound by blood documentary and that you guys did. Uh, eventually, in the end of that thing, did get together. How's that relationship now? Uh, I mean, we're good. I mean, it's not like we're hanging out. Talk or... Yeah, we don't talk, you know. But um, you know, I mean, it's cordial, right? I mean, yeah. we're not screaming and yelling at each other. Although, I, you know, there's a times where you know things are said or whatever. But you know, all in all, man, I just want to make sure that at the end of the day, that you know, it, it's I've got no hard feelings. You know, I mean, we both did well. We did what we needed to do um, in our in our own respective careers, and yeah. and now that we've got to move on. Yeah, he, yeah, you know, it's just the way it is. And and however he moves on, I support him. You know, uh, I have a, a nonprofit. It's called Doodads, and it's uh, you know, I grew up. I lost my father early on. He wasn't around. And this this organization is for kids who have lost their dads. It's also, uh, for, you know, kids that don't have positive male role models in their lives. And we help out, you know, single moms and, and these moms that are raising them. Uh, no one identifies better with that than you do. And, um, Bob Shamrock was a huge influence on your life. And I don't think people really understand the importance of having, it doesn't have to be your, uh, blood father, your, your, your uh, you know, but just to have that person in your life and, and how important is that? And, and really I would say, I mean, it say he saved your life, right? Yeah. There's no question. Mine and, and Frank's both. Uh, yeah. he, he, he did a lot of other kids, not just us. You know, he just had that, that character and that personality that he, he really learned what really made the kids tick and what, what their issues and problems were and tried to help them understand how they could deal with those different issues and problems that they had. So uh, he was a very unique individual. And uh, my mom, my mom, Dee, Dee who I have a relationship with now, also the same thing, just a unique, unique individual to be able to do the things that they did and to help so many of those kids. And what, what is your message? Cause I know, uh, you know, a lot of people know the lion's den. That's where you train some of the, the greatest fighters ever in MMA, but you also have lion's den ministries uh, what is the message that you try and get out there to uh, well, a lot of these troubled kids that are you know young and, and, and a lot of fathers or people walking away uh, from those responsibilities? Well, you know, one thing that you, I think the hardest thing is, is that everybody has moments in life that we're all very immature at times, you know, and yeah. Uh, the one thing I always say is, is to always make sure that you have, a, uh, and the, the biggest message I can share with anybody, uh, and it's not now, it's when they, when they get to that point where they're mature enough to understand this, yeah. uh, is to make sure that they constantly leave room in their hearts for forgiveness, because that's the only thing that will allow families and, and, and kids and fathers 
to be able to come together when the moment is right. If you don't have that room in there and you believe that, you know, you've done too much or that you're, you're, you're right, they were wrong. If you can't put all that aside and just say, you know what, it doesn't matter what happened, how it happened. If we're going to get together and get this thing to work and we have to put it behind us, start fresh. And, you know, there are a lot of kids out there, too, that may not have the gifts that you possessed. But uh, if you wouldn't have had that drive, and you talked about this earlier in our conversation, uh, you know, what do you tell them that no matter where you come from, if, if you have that belief and that, and that drive, that you will find success in life? That, is, that, uh, is that true considering where you came from? Uh, you know, being stabbed in a robbery at 10 and, and not knowing where the hell you were going to end up. Uh, but you always said that you just never, never quit, never uh, believed that you weren't going to succeed somehow. Well, when people say, you know, you, you know, I'll never give up, you know, and it, a lot of people say these things or I'll do whatever it takes. Yeah. And they say, but do they really understand what that means? Because when you say those things, that's what, you know, you look at the wording on that's what it means. Like, you don't just stop because you've done it for 10 years and things aren't working. So now all of a sudden you, you just give up uh, or that everything has gone wrong and there's no way you can't see the end of it. Now, I always tell people, you know, when it gets to a point where you feel like there's no more left, you have to take one more step because that's usually when things will break loose. You can't say something like that or get into something like that and make a commitment like that without being for real because it will push you to a point to where you will feel like, there is no way I can get through this. And that's when you've got to take one more step. Yeah. Uh, how can people get in touch with the uh, Lion, Lion's Den Ministries uh, or, or uh, some of your other organizations that you're involved in that that help these kids? Yeah, you can go into actually my website's the best way to get a hold of uh, all my social media sites and, and my ministries, kinshamrock.com. Everything's on there. So you okay. want to come on, check it out, find out what we're doing. That's where we're at. Okay. And, and what else you got going on? You're always so busy. I listen to your podcast, uh, the most dangerous podcast, by the way, folks. Um, but what else is going on with you these days? What do you, what do you, well, got we got a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of business stuff that we're working on. We've got a lot of things called pocket shots going to be out on the shelves in Walmart soon. So yeah. uh, we're, we're really dabbling in a lot of different business opportunities with equity ownership and using my name as leverage for marketing. Well, folks, you can uh, find out all that Ken Shamrock is up to these days. Uh, he's still fighting. It may not be stepping into a ring, but uh, that's one thing you can count on. He will never stop. Uh, Ken, I want to thank you so much for taking time. I know you're busy, folks. You heard him busy. Uh, how, the busy uh, people behind him. We actually had to do this in two parts uh, to track him down, but I really uh, appreciate it, Ken. And uh, best of luck and everything. And I hope we cross paths one day. Yeah, man, I really appreciate you. Wow, Ken Shamrock, uh, what uh, an intense individual and what a career that that man has had. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't easy to catch up to Ken, but it was uh, very interesting to hear about his time uh, that uh, he spent in the MMA and uh, he's a UFC legend. And then, of course, what he was able to accomplish in the WWE. And, you know, I, I'm really fascinated by fighters. I don't know if you've been around many in your life, but uh, they are definitely unique uh, a unique breed. Uh, there's nothing more pure, really, than two people squaring off in a ring for the simple goal of proving which one can physically conquer the other. 
Uh, but, sh- you know, I, I said it's simple. It ain't that simple uh, <laughs> once you're in that position and not many people have the guts to do it. Uh, he is also one of the fires, fighters um, who helped blaze the trail in the MMA. And we're talking, you know, before the UFC, when everything uh, pretty much went in the ring. I mean, you could do just about anything. It was basically a street fight. Uh, they did, you know, without any padding, was open-handed. And uh, really what he's accomplished now in the UFC Hall of Fame and um, what he did for the WWE. I want to thank uh, Ken Shamrock for coming on. It was really awesome uh, to have him on PTSM. Uh, once again, uh, I want to thank uh, or, or you know, shout out here to our, our latest giveaway winners. We're going to be giving away a lot more stuff. Uh, Roman Itkin, also Jason Taylor, Big Josh Hinkle, Chris Gallant, John Owens. Uh, congratulations, guys. And, uh, you know, I'm really honored that, that people even want my autographed pictures. Uh, you know, like my, my kids don't get it. They're like, wait, what? People want your picture with your it's signing it? What? But uh, really, I, I do appreciate that. And we've also been able to give away many other autographed pictures of uh, some of the great superstars from the golden era of wrestling. You know, it's uh, era I'm talking about, the 80s and 90s. And I'll tell you, we have to uh, really thank Scott Wilder for supplying those pictures. And he's uh, really been such a great help along the way. You know, Scott is a promoter and he's also a big collector of wrestling memorabilia. And I'll tell you guys, he is, he is one of the good guys. Uh, and anybody that's ever worked with him will tell you the same thing uh, from the world of professional wrestling. Uh, he is a great guy. And also, as I mentioned, he's a collector and he's got a great memorabilia business. If you're interested in obtaining wrestling memorabilia at a great price, uh, Scott Wilder, is your guy and you connect with, uh, you can connect with Scott through Scott Wilder promotions. That's uh, Scott Wilder promotions on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And, uh, he says in person, he's all over the place. So if you run into Scott, uh, he'll be more than happy to help you out. Uh, if you're looking for autographed items from legends to uh, current roster guys, you know, like eight, eight, eight by tens or custom prints of these people, uh, figures, and much more, uh, check out Scott Wilder Promotions on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, you know, we're all excited about being a part of StarCast and All In. Uh, lots of big announcements uh, going on this past week, uh, including uh, that uh, all of StarCast, all of StarCast and All In is going to be broadcast on Fight.tv. And so if you weren't able to get a ticket to that great event in Chicago, you can now bring it home, literally, uh, with Fight.TV. Um, they're going to be having a lot more information out there. Uh, this event just keeps getting better. Uh, you know, I love to hear from you all. You connect with me via email at primetimemooney at gmail.com. That's primetimemooney at gmail.com. Uh, check out our YouTube channel, Primetime with Sean Mooney. Lots of great videos up there. We just uh, posted one. A conversation I had with Marty Jannetty you're not going to find anywhere else uh, when I was back east in Rhode Island. Uh, Facebook, of course, is the place to get the latest announcements regarding any and all uh, PTSM. And we will have more announcements coming. So uh, check in on our social platforms often. And, of course, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at PrimetimeMooney. I have to tell you, it's been great being with you once again. And uh, keep checking in. As I mentioned, we've got a lot of announcements coming up. That's it for Prime Time this week. I'm Sean Mooney, and I am out. Mm-hmm.